Welcome to the All Creation Podcast. I'm Chris Searles, executive editor and co-founder of allcreation.org. And I'm also the editor of this issue, Envisioning Transformation, with my friend, Reverend Lewis Tillman. And in this episode, we get to talk with another of my favorite mentors, Reverend Jimmy Calhoun. Jimmy Calhoun is a man with a lifetime of leadership in human integration, celebration, and reconciliation. And before I read this intro, let me tell you, it's going to take a couple of minutes here. We all are people worthy of a four-minute intro, but Jimmy's is a little more exciting and interesting than, than most of us. So here we go. Jimmy is today an author and ethicist who's been pastoring for nearly 40 years in various denominations and capacities. And since the 1960s, he has been an historically important musician and racial integrator. Jimmy is completing his fifth book and ministering weekly now to the disabled and through his interdenominational church, bridgingaustin.org. There is so much more I can say about Jimmy. He's appeared on all the major TV networks as a storyteller, for instance. And when I look at the contributions to culture and human well-being that Jimmy's lifetime of work is, I see a man who has been transformative since he was a kid in California in ways that are inclusive and beneficial to everyone. And that is the institutional transformation we are exploring, seeking, and envisioning in this conversation and in this collection. Jimmy was raised in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1950s and 60s. He grew up there during what I consider to be the most positive transformation period in American cultural history, literally co-powering the epicenter of the 60s West Coast hippie youth movement to integrate all people through our affinities our shared loves, and music was a huge part of that. Jimmy was playing bass with soul and R&B stars like Lou Rawls and Wilson Pickett before he could drive. By the time he retired from music in the early 1980s, he had helped define bass playing in three genres of 20th century American music, West Coast funk, New Orleans funk, and funk rock. Note the repetition of the word funk. Jimmy did this by playing bass on legendary recordings with Parliament Funkadelic, Dr. John, Sly Stone, and three albums with his own band, Creation, and many, many more albums, playing on dozens of uncredited recordings, such as the Rolling Stones' Exile on Main Street. So all of that was a big deal. However, in 1983, Jimmy left the music industry and became a Christian pastor, dedicating his life to people and peace. Since the 90s, he and his wife, Julaine, have lived all over, helping thousands of people in millions of ways. Currently, one of their ministries focuses on worship inclusion for people with disabilities. Worship for people with disabilities. It is breathtaking. Reverend Calhoun has four books on reconciliation. One reader's quote about Jimmy's fourth book turns out that being love is functnology. So... It is a great honor to have you here, Jimmy. I'm a fan on many levels. And to the audience, I see Reverend Calhoun as a man who is all in on the things he cares about, a person who lives in his integrity in large part by helping others. Jimmy, sir, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Chris. <laughs> that was uh, overwhelming uh, to, to, hear, uh, to hear your your characterization of uh, the things I've been involved with over the years, but I, I'm appreciative nonetheless. 
yeah, it's a it's a mouthful, and uh, it's it's also really exciting to talk to you. Okay, so our topic is uh, transformation, and I wanted to ask you how you have experienced transformation. You have this unique place in history, um, and also why transformation and, and envisioning transformation is difficult for people to see. Why it's difficult to envision transformation, and then inside of that as well, if you can talk about the kinds of transformations that religious institutions need to seek. You know, what how, What criteria, how do we, where, where is the compass, the North Star for, for transformation today? Well, I, I think uh, the, the beginning is probably where, I should begin where you began, and that's from a historical perspective. And as noted earlier, I grew up in, in the San Francisco Bay Area at, uh, I came of age, you know, like a young adulthood, just as the, the hippie movement was, uh, was ascending to be a cultural phenomenon in the United States. And, and it's hard to imagine how, how much of an impact it had because in, in retrospect, because it seeped into the culture and our culture is what it is today, partially because, and, and actually in a large part because of what was happening then. So I can just give you a couple of basic things that I observed as a young young man watching all of these things converge, you know. Uh, at that time, it was only London, New York, and San Francisco, and actually San Francisco was the leader uh, world globally. And uh, to, put it, to put it briefly, I would say that transcendence actually preceded transformation. And what I mean by that, it, it, there was something that people saw going on that was larger than what the change that needed to follow. There were some questions that were asked and what happened, how the society was transformed was actually in response to the question. So in that sense, it was, <laughs> it might sound a little bit, um, well, I don't, cliche-ish, but you know, who are we? Why are we here? And why are we doing this? And that's in relationship to life. And you know, the, the Beatles, who were the cultural leaders of uh, the spokesperson for my generation, you know, they went all over the place looking for it. They went to India and they had gurus. And out in San Francisco, we were experimenting with different uh, other ways of trying to find ways to. Uh, in one word, enlightenment. But when, you know, enlightenment can sound kind of cliche-ish itself. But if you break it down and look at the root word, it just means to throw, put a light on something. You know, like a spotlight. You enter a dark room, you want to see what's in there, you put a light on. You know, you're, you're entering a dark space uh, culturally. What do you want to do? Put a light on it. So you want to be enlightened. So in that sense, uh, you know, there, there's something that we we've lost our sense of uh, mystery and wonder. We don't, we're not looking beyond the everyday mundane accumulation of goods and material stuff. And that we, we're not living in two places at once. We're not, we're not living in the now looking to the future. So from my perspective, transformation needs a little bit of both. Needs both in the sense of living in the now and looking to the future. As Correct. A society. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Not only what is, is what could be. <laughs> and, and so then how do we, you know, right now we're, it's uh, December 2nd, 2022, and um, we're still in the midst of a very polarized American culture, for instance, that's on most people's minds that I talk to right now. How does society kind of come together around this idea of saying, who are we? Because I think right now they're, you know, very different perspectives on what that means. Maybe we haven't found a common understanding just in the United States. Yeah, certainly. And, and I agree wholeheartedly, uh, Chris. And, uh, you know, our political system is adversarial. Uh, I mean, by definition, we have two parties. And so therefore, uh, it's, it should be no surprise uh, that we're going to have disagreements. But disagreements should only be on the issues, not the essentials. And what I think you're saying by being polarized is we've crossed the line from disagreeing with people to being disagreeable with people. And we, <laughs> and so I've seen from a pastoral viewpoint, I've seen politics cause families to fragment. Uh, people don't speak to other people because of the lever they pulled on whatever particular election. And from my view, that ought not to be. And uh, that's, pro <laughs> that's mostly what my writing and my, my life and my ministry is about is bridging those things that seem unbridgeable. You know, that uh, we think this is just too, this is a bridge too far. I can't cry. I, I mean, you voted for my enemy. Uh, how can I speak to you anymore? I mean, how can you be this? And you know, you loved them before you found out <laughs> who they voted for. It took a few sentences for you to get to the point where you realize that they voted for somebody you didn't like. So that same person you loved five minutes ago, you can still love. You can strongly disagree with them and you can disagree with their choice, but there's no reason you got to throw the, you know, the, the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. If I may um, ask this of you, because you're such an experienced caregiver, I think um, I was thinking about this, you know, from the perspective of um, engaging people, you know, on a daily basis, every every interaction. If we were to just to take one step back uh, for the audience that's listening, you know, you and I met because of an event we did entitled "Called to Care." That's also featured in this issue, and. Um, and the idea there was, you know, what about what if care were identity? You know, if we put that first in our identity, we default to care in every situation before judgment, so on and so forth. And, and why can't we, you know? And I was thinking about this in the context of envisioning transformation. And I was thinking, okay, so skipping ahead a little bit in some of the conversations you and I have had, um, in a way, transformation of institutions is about making them more caring for every single individual. And that's what they're doing wrong in a way is they're they're fundamentally rooted in a white patriarchy of, you know, Western European slash American industrialization and digitization effectively, you know, and um, and the institutions were built uh, that way for a lot of reasons and did a lot of terrible things and a lot of good things. And now here we are. And um, and when you think about a world that's based in caring, trying to engage with every individual you know you as you engaging with me and then with the neighbor across the street and the mailman or whatever 
it's like we should make a mental switch that we should expect there to be differences you know in, instead of this thing of fearing conflict and fearing awkwardness and all that stuff we should actually go to the differences we should know that you know just as you know when you go to the disabled for instance there's no way that you're going to be in the same place for, uh, literally you're not going to that person expecting them to affirm you through your political beliefs or whatever right <laughs> and so we're in this funny kind of i think uh wrong you know rootedness <laughs> about that and i'm curious if conversation was sort of different back in the you know 60s and 70s um interracially intereconomically um, intergenerationally maybe in that way that people were less concerned about oh my god this could be uncomfortable and more going hey you know what do we what's different about us and what do we both love you know I, i've heard you talk about this idea of uh, connecting through our affinities well culturally uh, <laughs> things definitely changed but it wasn't a smooth uh, linear happening i mean it, there was there was a lot of um, tumult and turmoil and protesting and people not wanting to give an inch and then uh, they realized the inch was on the other side of them so they better retreat i mean there's a i guess there's two things i would say to that and one about care i think i need to preface this with hearing me speak i'm not utopian i'm a not a naive utopian one of my favorite quotes by you is it's much better to have an honest discussion than a polite discussion. Yeah. But I am altruistic and I do believe better is possible, but I think it's also hard to achieve. And sometimes we have to step out there and we don't know what the end is going to be. We can't do the Stephen Covey start with the end in mind because the end isn't discernible right now. We know what it would like to be we would like it to be a more loving caring society but it's hard and we're individuals with different frames and different frames of reference and that, that chris brought up the disabled community we started a church and primarily to be a church for people living with a disability now there's a distinction between a church with people living with a disability we started it because we wanted them to be included in the liturgy and every activity that was going on in the church rather than a church we function as able-bodied and they get to watch us do our thing by sitting in another room having it piped in or sitting in the back or sitting in the front whichever so we wanted to blend this melding, this amalgam of people who are able-bodied and people who are challenged, physically or intellectually challenged. There was a problem in that there's so much variety within the disabled community that, and just like there is in the able-bodied community, it's intricate and it takes, it takes a lot of tender loving care to blend them together. And I'll just give you one story. We had a person reading part of the biblical passage who had an intellectual disability. And so they would read four or five sentences and have to start over. 
Then they'd read five or six more sentences and have to start over again. Well, the people with a physical disability in the wheelchair lost patience with the other person with a disability different than theirs. And they came to me and said, you got to stop that person from reading because, you know, it's taking too much time. and I'm not enjoying the service if you let them read. And I thought, wow, what an illustration for how challenging it is in the broader culture to have people be patient with the other while they're pursuing what it is they're trying to input and contribute to the overall conversation. We're not a very patient society. So when you brought up disability, I thought about that as not only a metaphor, but an illustration about the challenge that we face when we try to bring people together who come from various walks of life, racially, physically, socioeconomically, geographically. I mean, there's just so many challenges that we have to overcome before real transformation is even, before we even start the process. Yes. And in that line, I want to ask you about feelings. Because to me, the the thing I hear there is uh, that's, you know, most present in my life, uh, or, or rather my sort of revelations right now is just recognizing that, you know, you're talking about um, one person getting impatient with another person, all right? It's sort of a, one basic dynamic there. And um, what's interesting to me to go one, one more time back to your, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s kind of life. Um, in the 60s, things began to propel themselves. And, you know, there was an idealistic vision uh, in there to some degree. There was youth energy in there to some degree. But I also think um, there were two important components that we haven't focused on as an American culture, at least one of them, you know, which is like our potential. What can we do? How good can we make the future? Um, and, and the other one I think is um, it literally felt good probably to be, you know, you're talking about there's this, again, going back to the 60s, in particular, the civil rights movement, there's an enormous uh, conflict, real conflict and um, real violence. And the things that people are really afraid of happening today and so on and so forth um, at, at a greater scale. And um, and so one of the ways that was, or one of the things that was balancing living in that was the music and the culture and the, you know, flower power, the tie-dye, the, the explosion of like celebration of this positive energy. And, you know, like you've told me you grew up with Sly um, and that, that footage of Sly um, and the family stone in the, in the movie in Harlem that, uh, okay. Yeah. And I think it's 71 or so, you know, right before Sly kind of had a downfall. It was earlier, earlier, 69, maybe that they are the freshest band in the world, maybe ever at that moment. And there's just such an energy there that's explosive and exciting. And so that's, you know, emotionally that feels so good. Right. And, um, one last thing is we were talking, um, in a different interview, I was talking with a woman named Marge Barlow about her project in feminism. And her uh, ongoing effort to sort of help women see their potential. And it's like these things, they're, you know, better than durable. They're, they're upward cycling because it is about tapping into our potential. So in a way, no matter how bad things have gotten for hippies, you know, in the real world since uh, the, the 70s, you know, financial baby boomerism and all this kind of stuff that is reality in this current, you know, economic context those um, things, uh, those values of being individuals and, um, you know, coming together, 
those things get stronger, I think, as we get closer to being, um, you know, true to ourselves. And, and that's a feeling that it feels good in your body to be that person and to be with other people like that. That's my impression. I'm curious if, if you can relate to any of that, having been there, you know, 60 years ago, 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's getting you remember. many years ago. But, uh, <laughs> okay. Just to the hippie movement. And uh, I grew up in a, in a religious family. My parents were in ministry, both my grandparents. And uh, my brother and I, I have an older brother who's named Bill, and he was much more musically talented than me. His bands used to be the uh, the big cheese. We mentioned Sly. Well, my brother's bands were higher as far as Bay Area stuff. But he left to go into, the, he joined the Black Panther Party as soon as it formed. And he became, you can see, there's, there's a lot, there's movies and books out about Bill right now. And that meant he went to Oakland side. And I went to the San Francisco side with the flower power. I became a hippie and warped and did everything. And I protested the war and got my head beat in. And he told me recently that, you know, he used to take the Black Panther newspaper and have a gun and go up and go to New York to have them printed. And, you know, our lives were completely different. In my first book, I told a story about a Black Panther came up to, to me and said, you know, you and Sly and Jimmy and uh, Buddy and Taj Mahal, you guys are going to have to pick a side when the, when the, when, when the revolution comes, we're, we're, you don't want to be left behind. Well, you know, there was this anticipation of a, of a revolution and armed up, upheaval and, and the world's going to be turned upside down. Well, that guy who said it, I didn't put it in the book, was my brother. <laughs> you know, he's <laughs> the one who told I didn't want to, I, I, you know, I did, the movies came out, so he's been outed, so now I can do that. But, but uh, the point in this was, my brother saw one way to make a better world. Geographically, he went 15 miles on the other side. I saw a different way to make a better world, and I went up, and we had what on the surface would have appeared to be two diametrically opposed method. The methodology seemed to be in conflict. And in the last couple of years, he sat on my couch and he says, you know, Jimmy, you know, we both got involved and we did all this stuff and here we are, you know, in late in life and it turns out we were always chasing the same thing. And that same thing was always peace for a greater number of people so that they could enjoy their life and they could maximize their potential and they were free to be who they wanted to be and who they were created to be. And that, that really ultimately is the, the challenge. How do we make that accessible and not to be John Locke or anything for the greatest amount of people? It's not, it's not a social contract. What it is, it, it's, a, it's a biblical way of looking at the world that if there's this God that, that I'm ordained to serve, then that person has an interest, invested interest, a vested interest in every single human being that's living on the planet right now. And my job, <laughs> my challenge, and I've, uh, I've willingly accepted, is to see how I can be a benefit, how I can help others see the need to be a benefit to the next person they'll come in contact with.
It might be an H-E-B, the market here. It might be, you know, getting on a bus, a train, a plane, wherever it is. That next person you see has value and worth, irrespective of the shape you find them in. How are you going to see them and be a part of moving them along with the hope that, you know, they talk about pay it forward. But, you know, that only works if it's in a circle. <laughs> you know, everybody's paying it forward, but while you're doing it, somebody's behind you doing it for you. And that's, that's, that's the thing. That's the bridge. Yeah, I think, uh, and this may be a good way to tie over to the question on creation care, too. Um, you know, I, I, I do question this sort of um, actualization, I'll say, since that popped out of my mouth, of uh, behavior. You know, that in the, the world of religion, every individual is not looked at as, uh, you know, this incredibly miraculous ball of potential that we don't go to each individual with this excitement. Instead, we're trying to just figure out how not to harm each other in a way still, uh, you know, 60 years after the beginning of the civil rights movement becoming mainstream in America, maybe. And um, from a large historical arc, it's it's certainly understandable. There's, you know, a big old planet out there and a lot of human culture. And America is in the leading position to some degree. And San Francisco really was the leading place, I think, historically so far um, in demonstrating kind of best behavior. But um, creation care, to me, for a religious person, for a Christian person, is at, you know, maybe a logical level, at the very least, about that same approach. And it's, it is in, you know, Genesis 1, uh, this idea of being a care provider. Um, so do you, for, for the other life on our planet, so do you have, you know, a, a way of understanding creation care that relates to the way you understand human care? Well, I think they're uh, inextricably linked. One doesn't happen without the other. And they're intertwined, interlinked, and they're one in the same sentence. And uh, getting to Genesis 1, where it's uh, talking about the have you will rule over or have dominion or the, whatever, whichever way you want to uh, define that word, uh, that was only a statement. That was a one-time statement. But if you look at Genesis 2, this repeated with an added um, mandate, God date, <laughs> added list of instructions. And uh, when I grew up, all the police cars, even the ones who were coming to, to knock our heads when we were protesting the war, it said to protect and serve. And, uh, you know, that was initially, that was what the, the police their job, their role, their job description was, was to protect and serve the public. Their job was to provide civic good, you know, not to go searching out for bad guys. If, if there was an offender, then you arrested them. It wasn't a proactive job. That happened in another country at another time when you went around deciding who was the criminal already and then going and confronting them that was that's for germans and that was we know how that turned out protect and serve as opposed to seek and destroy correct yeah that's a good way of saying it and ironically in the bible in genesis 2 that was our mandate to the earth we're supposed to guard it and not 
rule over it in, in the sense of being master, but to serve it in the way of being Jesus, who came to be a servant to many. At a time, if we believe the biblical story about Jesus, he could have been the baddest dude that ever, the baddest of the bad, because he had all power in the world at his disposal and chose to use none of it. So the idea that if I give you power over something that you have to immediately use it runs contradictory to the Bible story. I mean, you can't find it there. So, I mean, that's where you're, you're extracting principles for your own personal use rather than submitting to the story as given. And so in my view, creation story is one of, we're part of this bigger story and our role is to protect and serve. We don't want to become the seek and destroy. <laughs> can you talk, uh, can you talk also about, uh, you've used this phrase, biblical ecology, kind of what that means, um, you know, in this context. Is that about creation care or is that about human relationships? How do you mean biblical ecology? It was about creation care. That, that's the, the thing. And that is that the idea of protecting and serving. But, I mean, we can carry that over to each every, every human being. We do have a role to protect and serve each other. Those are two simple words, but you try it. Try being a servant to someone without reciprocity, you know, uh, without just trying to, to love them and want what's best for them and do what's best for them. And if they don't respond the way you want, we quit. <laughs> That's human nature. You know, we're in a market economy, even in terms of material goods, but the way we see the world. Everything is contractual. It's an exchange. We want an ex and then we, we decide whether it was a fair exchange. And once we feel like it's not a fair exchange, we feel we have the right to withdraw. But in a covenantal relationship and with a responsibility, you have to keep going no matter what the other person does. <laughs> you have to push ahead. If they don't carry their load, that's on them. You do your part, regardless of the outcome or whatever it is, you know, you know, you, you know, you do what you're supposed to do. So, you know, in that sense, that is creation care. You know, I, I have a responsibility to be conscious of how my behavior and, and everything impacts the next person, not because it's a rule, but because I care about the next person. I want them, you know, I want them to be able to drive down the street without my car being blocking their street. I want to follow, sort of follow into that a little deeper. So it's hard to pay it forward. It's hard to do things for people in what I perceive to be a time where we're particularly kind of uh, out of balance from trauma and neglect and depravity and abuse institutionally and um, historically and and you know, it's, it's certainly never been perfect, right? But uh, the, the human society has never been perfect. But when you try to turn the other cheek, as it were, you know, sometimes the people that you're dealing with, for instance, in this um, 
congregation of disabled people relative to a you know an easier a, a mega church or something like they keep slapping for a while they they have a lot of needs you know and and you really have to serve like you said you really have to be strong to serve i'm just sort of curious how you see that you know that that long process of of change the you, you go up three steps forward and then four steps back and then four steps forward and two steps back and you know the the emotional aspects of healing and things um how do you kind of view that in your work and and then also on the larger idea of reparations and you know race history and things like that if you can talk about that well yeah that's uh yeah, I mean, talking about human rights, where we were just where we left off was talking about human responsibilities. The two R words of the, the I would choose responsibilities, and and there's something in there's something I put in my third book about teshuva. It's this concept of restorative justice, and we don't like to think in terms of restorative justice. We like to think in terms of punitive justice. And what I mean by that is if somebody took my new Corvette and they drove it to Florida and the police found them in Florida and they said, well, you got to give Jimmy's new Corvette back. He goes, I don't want to. Now take me to jail for five years. You know, in our mindset, we might be happy that he got what's coming to him. That turkey's in jail for five years, but you're still without a car. <laughs> the car, the car is still in Florida. He's not giving. He's not telling where it is. And when he gets out of jail, everything is uh, called even. And he goes back, and he got, he has a car with zero miles on it. But restorative justice says, okay, you're not going to be freed of anything until you take that car back and make that person whole. That's quite different, making the other person whole. And so then we have this idea of not reparations, but making the earth whole, people within the earth whole. Let's, for lack of a better term, let's use recreation. We should be involved in the process of recreation. There was a creation from a religious standpoint that God did, but he's given us the responsibility and the job to be involved in recreation. I hope that makes sense. Do you mean uh, sort of advancing again in a way like, um, you know, an era, one era ends, another era begins? That's certainly part of it, but not necessarily even from the creative, like you and I think, because we're both musicians. So we think in terms of, well, let's create a part. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there, there's a hole there. There's something's not happening. Let's make up something. You know, let's invent. Let's create. No, I, I'm talking about more than like the Bible says. When one creation happened, there was a conversation that said, this is good. Well, if we look around and we're not seeing that it's good, then we've got to make it good. So that's, in a way, restoring, but it's recreating because it was once created to be good. So now if it's going downhill a little bit, then we need to recreate it so that it returns to its normalcy. So it returns to a place where that sentence could be said once again, 
and it's good. So recreation in that context. Well, let me try to thread together um, another piece of this that we've talked about. Um, you know, the idea of making everyone whole. And I feel like a moment ago you were talking about um, how you may, I may have this totally wrong, but how, you know, it's almost impossible sort of for every human being to have a high quality of dignity in life. Um, I know I have that wrong. That's a bad summary of what you were saying. But, um, but what I was trying to get to is um, I think that is how we're thinking right now is that there's a hopelessness in the air about humanity. And when you say things like make everyone whole, that rings the bell of this kinship idea that we've talked about and that came out in the most recent all creation where we change our worldview. You know, we begin to look at every individual as important and we begin to look at society as a, a vessel for nurturing. So the, this, you know, academic definition of kinship worldview is that everyone is an important individual in a nurturing community. And, you know, how do you change the whole world? Well, I mean, Again, to me, it's like it's this feeling. You start to feel better because you've, you're around people who care about you and you have a good time with. Things start to move in a better direction. I don't know. These are simplifications I'm offering. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good. And uh, I will say this to that. In, in, the, in the book, my forthcoming book, I, I, I do talk about kinship and kinfolk primarily because when... In the early days, there was this really good band in Oakland called the Kinfolk, man, and they were they were just. I was only fourteen or so, but and they were the bomb, and they just. Was this also an interracial band? You know, the no, they were, they were the Kinfolk were from Oakland, and I guess you could say that Oakland kind of means they were uh, African American. Oakland yeah. was always primarily African American. Oh yeah, yeah, very okay. much. Yeah. yeah. So, and and. So the kinfolk, there's a good parallel there because you could call a kinfolk all an all black band would be kinfolk, because we naturally assume kin are quote like us may not be the best and the most uh, accurate use of the term or the idea of being in kin or being in kinship because the uh, the word kin comes from the old English word which might be pronounced the same way, but it's spelled C-Y-N-N, kin, sin, you know. And that's the, that old English word by definition meant race. It also meant family. And it also meant kind. So then that, kept, that question comes up, what do I mean when I say my own kind? Do I mean all handsome bass players or handsome musicians? Or do I mean... Uh, everybody who's from California and is vegetarian, or do I mean everybody who likes sports cars, or do you know what? What are my kind? And that's a question we we just seem to take for granted. And the what we turn to most often in America is skin color. But what that will do is get a Stanford grad or a Harvard grad, a white Harvard grad on a desert island with a white ex-convict who only went to the eighth grade and their skin color is not going to be much of a bonding agent in that circumstance because they're going to have absolutely nothing in common so you know you we really need to be careful when we just assume we knew know who our kind are and maybe it's wise to have an expansionist view and say 
everyone <laughs> is our kind. They are just different kinds. And that's why that word uh, kin or sin, when it's broken down in its definition, it already had three different kinds that, that you wouldn't think were part of the same word, but they were. That's what the word meant. And so variety and diversity, you can see diversity is already built in the universe. It should not take a degree from Harvard to figure out that diversity is natural and it's a good thing. Reality. And we fight against it. Do you have any, do you want to take a shot at talking about why we fight against it? As I threw in there, diversity is reality, you know. The thing I like to say as the environmental advocate is we emerged into a biodiverse planet. And that's even in the creation story. You can you can look at that in all of the different sacred texts as well. That was a life-rich planet when we got here. And we depend on that as the life support system. And it's the same as the, you know, this uh, metaphor of the human ecosystem where all the relationships you have that sustain you, you know, we depend on diversity. And then your own body and your own life, you change your kaleidoscope your whole life. And so diversity is reality, and yet, as you said, you know, we fight against it. So do you want to take a swing at... <laughs> I would need a pretty large bat, you know, that's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I think you that's... probably thought about it. Yeah, yeah, right, that's a, that's a, that's, that's, uh, you know, I, I could give you some answers from reading or from my religious training, you know, but they wouldn't be very satisfying because they would only cover a small segment of the population. and. You know, it's why cognitive ability is so important that we're able to override some of our natural inclinations because we can think and we can say, oh, well, you know, running five miles a day hurts and my body doesn't want to do it. But then when I do it, when I went to the doctor, the doctor said, well, you're in better health than you were a year ago. And then I can go home and say, well, I think I want to be in good health, so I'll keep running. Body, you have to do this, and I'm going to make you do it. I'm going to make you get out and walk out of that door, and you're going to put on running shoes and run down the street. Okay, and so I had to override that natural inclination to say, no, that's too tough. I ain't doing that, man. You know, I, I don't want to do that. And being aware and appreciative of the diversity that exists is hard work. It always doesn't come natural. And I think we're basically lazy. <laughs> we want everything to come to us. We, were, we have the sense of entitlement. If it's something that, is, that doesn't please me or come naturally, then I, I have no responsibility to, to try to twist or change my way of thinking so that I either appreciate it or get involved in it to whatever level you want to be. We don't, we just don't think we, we have a responsibility to do that. And so if there's somebody, if there's a whole community that lives across town and they, they have this cultural way of looking at the world and they're doing this, they just came from Bangladesh and there's 7,000 of them and they, as long as they stay there, then I don't have any responsibility towards them. But the wiser course of action is to get in your car and go over and you'll find some great food, great people, and you'll, you'll find some language and they use words to describe things that you 
that you never thought, oh, I never thought it, saw that. That word's better than the English word. That's more descriptive. That works better. That fits better. All these exciting things that come out of diversity and some attributed to fear, but I would, I, I don't think anybody's afraid. I think they're lazy. <laughs> like the, more like they're running at it. I mean, my life's going swimmingly right now. Why should I change? Everything is good for me. I have a good job, a good car, this and that. Why do I need to be thinking about what's going on in, in, in uh, Belize, Central America now? And, you know, that there's no reason for me to think of those things. So I would say the biggest adversary to the appreciation of diversity is a partially fear, but it's laziness. We just, uh, years ago, they used to say that we were involved in uh, culture wars between the right and the left and who's going to win, who's going to prevail. But, you know, I, I put this, we're, we're, we're pretty much into comfort wars, you know. We're, mm -hmm. we're in battles about see how comfortable we can be and mm -hmm. anything that's construed as making our lives more comfortable is good. And anything that requires getting out of that box is bad. And we would just leave it right there. We just assumed it didn't exist. So that's probably all I could add to that, to that question. To tie this to one great point, I think that everyone needs to hear. Like when you're out there doing this service work and, and I can't think of too many things that are more service oriented than a congregation for disabled people that is about them, not about just inclusion, but about building the worship for them. That is service. When you're doing that, that feels good, right? I mean, it's not easy every day and there's a lot of complications around pulling that off, but it gives you a lot. Well, it gives me a lot and also tells me a lot about myself. You know, it, it, it's back to that duality. You know, there are things I want to do and there are things I should be doing. And they don't always come together naturally. There's one story. About five years ago, there was this uh, this guy in this one place, and he drooled, and he walked around with a, a bag. And it seemed like every time I got to the door, he was there. And he always wanted to hug me. And I didn't want to, uh, oh, you know, and, and it got... Every week I went to this one place and it seemed like weekly he was like, he knew I was coming. Somehow there was this, he got this, this he's waiting for you. Yeah. He was waiting for laying for me, you know, and as soon as I hit the door, there he was. And, uh, you know, and I felt bad because it, it, there was this fragrance of urine, you know, he would just go whenever he can. And, you know, and it, well, COVID hit. So I didn't see him for two years. We're just starting to go, be allowed to go back in and have contact. And uh, three weeks ago, three to four weeks ago, Robert and I went, and there he was. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and this big smile came across his face. But in the interim, whatever medical problems he had had been fixed, and now they cleaned him up. And he's sitting there and now he almost looks, quote, normal. Mm. And he had this big smile because he's known me for the last nine to 10 years, but he never knew what I was thinking of him. He never knew that even though it appeared that I was 
accepting of him, I, it was challenging for me every time I saw him. And I had these thoughts that I didn't think should be there. But the moral of the story is I overrode the thoughts and I kept coming back. And I kept coming back and time over time, what was hard, difficult and abnormal became normal. Yeah, and 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 things get better in that long. Yeah, relationship. it got better for it's, sure. Um, oh, I, a, I can communicate with. As a result, I just I'd, I'll ask one more question uh, on a personal level, and then ask the final question on a podcast level. Um, you know, as an advocate, the way I look at progress now is like switchbacks on a mountain, or three mm -hmm. D printing in a way. You know, and you go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you you are making progress, but sometimes the trail goes down. Sometimes the trail goes up. The the two years of not seeing that guy was part of a 10-year journey. Yeah. And now things are in a better place. And if, if, if you had looked 10 years ago to what can we do, you know, I mean, just it's, it's hard to predict how to get things right. But it is that long um, sticking together thing. Yeah, I think, uh, Chris, I think the word that you used just then was is vital. I mean, to predict, prognosticate. If I do this, what will happen? Not only what's going to happen for me or to me, we, we think in those terms, you know, it's back to that contractual way we see life. You know, it's all a matter of give and take. And sometimes the things you and I are involved with, it's a matter of give and give. And that's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's fatiguing and challenging. But uh, I will say, I'll give you a racial um, story. We lived in Florida before we moved to Texas. And so probably 15, 16 years ago, uh, we lived in Boca Raton. We walked into this ice cream shop. And my wife, who's white, and I look how I look. And we walked into this ice cream store. And the proprietor goes, turned around and he was shocked. He goes, will you look at that? It was, it was one of those statements in disgust that rather than thinking, he verbalized it audibly and we could hear it. And my wife loved this particular type of ice cream because she's lactose intolerant and it was the only place we could get uh, this carbolite stuff that they'd made for people on that type of diet, this Atkins diet, that wasn't made from dairy. They'd made it from whey. And then it's just, so we had to, we had no choice but to go back. And if my wife was going to enjoy ice cream, I had to go with her and I had to see this guy who didn't think we should be married. So, you know, we would go back for however long, once a week, we would go to this, this ice cream store. And my birthday was three weeks ago. And I went to the post and I got a birthday card from the proprietor of that store. No way. Over time, just because we came so many times, Amazing. we became friends. Not only did we become friends, we became close friends to the point I was in his house. When his wife died, I was at the service and he sends me cards, Christmas cards, and he signs them, I love you. And 
the the thing about that is I just kept coming back even though I was uncomfortable. I invested the time, I invested the energy, and the person was, as we use the word, transformed. His way of looking at life, at looking at me, at looking at the things I was doing, changed. But it didn't happen as a result of me confronting him and saying, hey, bucko, we're both human. What's wrong with you? What's your problem? Let me tell you what you need to be doing and what you need to be thinking. And I have seven books I can show you to say I'm right and you're wrong. So let's get to it. That didn't happen that way. It happened through long-term engagement, patience, and uncomfortability on my part. As Western people, we're result-oriented rather than process-oriented. And sometimes the ethics involved matter little. As long as we can hold up the result and point to it, then that's considered to be good and worth celebrating. But that's to the detriment or overlooking the process of how we got there. And to have transformation that's going to be lasting or meaningful, sometimes it requires us to be process oriented and do the snail trail and just bit by bit and, and just keep plodding along and getting it done. And the results will come in due time. Having the patience to see them come is, is the challenge. And it, it, you have to remind yourself over, I'm doing this because, I'm doing this because, I'm doing this because. If I can change one life, one heart in Lansing, Michigan, and one in San Diego, California, then all of those hours over the computer are worth it. And I think it's that way with most things that are meaningful and worth doing. So this thing that we're involved in trying to make a world a better place, I make this metaphor, the Great Wall of China wasn't built brick by brick. It was built ideological brick by brick over a long period of time. And even when it was finished, it didn't achieve the desired results. But to tear it down, we have to do the reverse, ideological brick by brick dismantling as in the case of this guy's view of interracial marriage, it had, to be dis it had to be dismantled by my loving him to the point where I buy his ice cream and not give him stink face. <laughs> you know, so. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's a stronger message than that. So, thank you, Jimmy. That, that's a... Yeah, yeah, that's that's a whole lot to to live with and live on. And um, this has been Reverend Jimmy Calhoun. Thank you for being here, Jimmy. Thank you, my friend. And I, I know our our podcast is over, but I have another. I've written down another quote from you that ties to what you just said. Um, All meaningful change has to come at levels where commerce is not happening. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about relationships and identity and culture and, you know, how we live together, just fundamentally. That's what, that's what it's all about to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's my life.